In this episode of the Garrett Dickerson podcast, I'll be launching a series of talks I'm calling Let Go, Let God. There are things in our lives we need to let go of to let God fully work in us who he made us to be. We'll be digging into letting go of our kingdoms, letting go of our excuses, and letting go of our doubt. Thank you for listening to the Garrett Dickerson podcast. I wanted to start this episode with a story about Garen, our middle child by three minutes. And he used to do this thing when he was really little. I'd say he was probably two at the time, maybe right around there. And if I was gone for the weekend or I was coming home from work, I would come home and I would come up the steps and he would run over and real excited, he'd throw his arms up and he'd go, hold you, hold you, daddy, hold you. And I would get down beside him and I'd act like I was going to get in his lap and make him pick me up. And he would start laughing. And even though he was saying it wrong, he knew even at that early age that I was too big for him to pick me up, that I was too big for him to hold me. And there's actually this concept of holding and gripping things. And there's a, a whole neuroscience behind the concept of grip. And there's two schools of thought. The first school of thought says your brain has learned through experience to anticipate. And here's what I mean by that. Think about your house and different items around your house. And if, and if I were just thinking about things here, even in, in my home, you have maybe a book or you have a coffee table or you might have a stool. All of those things have a different weight. Your mind, in this first school of thought, says you need to hold each of those things with a certain amount of grip based on your experience that you have had in picking up something in similar size or what you perceive to be similar weight. And so you tend to grip things that are smaller and that you know, based on experience, won't take a lot of effort to exert in picking up that thing. Just like Garen knew even with a very small amount of experience in his short life at the time that I was too big to hold. I was too big to grip and to pick up. Have you ever been asked a question by a child and then responded with a question? Did your parents ever do that to you? Mine did it all the time. It frustrated me to no end. But now that I'm a dad, I, I get it. I would ask something like when I was a kid, hey, 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 mom, can, can I ride my bike down a, a steep hill and can jump it off a ramp I built? And she would say, what do you think? Or I would, I'd go to my dad and I'd ask a, another absolutely logical, insane question from the perspective of a well-informed adolescent. And he would say something like, do you think I was born yesterday? Jesus was the master of answering a question with a question. He would teach in the questions he asked. In Mark 10, we see Jesus using this methodology a couple of times with a couple of different people that come to him. Here in just a moment, I want us to read through Mark 10. And as we read through it, I want you to think about this methodology that Jesus uses, asking questions to answer questions. 
And I don't want us to necessarily focus on what questions are being asked of Jesus or even the responses given by Jesus per se. I want us to pay attention to who it is that is coming to Jesus and for what purpose. In Mark chapter 10, there's a story that you may or may not be familiar with. It's often referred to as the story of the rich young ruler. And it's a story that very often is pulled out of context and looks at examining worldly possessions. But there's also some stories around it. And I think there's a lot of value in looking at stories in context and asking the question, why, in this case, Mark, did he write this story in relationship to the other stories that are around it? So I'm going to read Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. And I'm going to read through this. And I'd love for you to read along with me, but I'm going to read through this. And I'm going to come back, and I want, to, I want us to look at these different stories in context. So Mark chapter 10, and verse 1, Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? Jesus replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Picking up in verse 13, People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responded, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father or mother. Teacher, he declared, All these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. This story of the rich young ruler is a story that's always stood out to me. I found myself studying it over and over again. I feel like I begin to see a lot of myself in the rich young ruler. And I think many people can. When you start thinking about pride and possessions, I think many begin to see themselves possibly in the rich young ruler. 
I want to say again, I don't want us to focus on the questions that Jesus was asked or necessarily the responses that he was giving in the forms of questions, but instead I want us to look through the stories in context and begin breaking these down. Have you ever wondered why, if you're familiar with this story, why these stories are together, why these accounts were provided in this order? Have you ever noticed that the story of this rich young ruler has this theme of youth around it, even referring to the ruler as young, and then the theme of children immediately preceding it with the account of the children coming to him. At first glance, these stories appear to have no connection, but I wonder if these were grouped together very specifically. I wonder if there is a reason, and I think the reason might be to show us how we should approach the kingdom of God and how we should develop in our faith. So again, let's consider that spectrum, that faith spectrum that we might see here with the Pharisees on one end and the children on the other. If you look at verses 1 through 9, the Pharisees, what we begin to see, they're described as their hearts being hard. They were coming to test Jesus. They didn't trust him. They didn't really understand him. And the first question that we see that Jesus answers with a question is to the Pharisees. Jesus treats them like we often treat children. Answering a question with a question like my parents did with me. He answers the question and says, what did Moses command you? And he says that the law was made because the Israelites' hearts were hard when they come questioning him about the law. And he flips that back around on them with a question. Then in verses 10 through 12, we see this next group, the disciples. Very near the Pharisees in their logic and in their thinking, they come and ask the same question. It even says they asked him about the same thing. And why they did that? Did they think they were going to get a different answer? Did they think that he was going to respond a different way than what he had just said? But these two stories, why does Mark take them back to back? These two stories where you have a group clearly opposed to Jesus, a group clearly in favor of Jesus, but reacting the same way, showing some level of distrust, some level of misunderstanding. And then you immediately follow these two circumstances with a scene of Jesus accepting children and the story of the rich young ruler. And so then in verses 13 through 16, you see children, our purest example of how to receive the kingdom of God. Christ's picture of humility, he shows throughout his teaching in children. This is echoed in this story in the book of Matthew and later in Matthew 18 verse 4 when he says, unless you're changed, and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Now, there is some debate over the translation of kingdom of God and what that actually means. I believe there is evidence that this is not only talking about eternal life, but also a better life today when we're focused on the full will of God in all things in our, our lives. But we see at the end of this, this faith spectrum that children are this purest example of how to receive the kingdom of God. And then you have in the middle. 
the rich young ruler. Verses 17 through 22, this character in the middle of this faith spectrum, these stories that seemingly have no connection, but if you zoom out and start considering why are these together, maybe we begin to understand that he is ironically likely in the middle of this age spectrum and in the middle of this faith spectrum. And we see Jesus answers his second question in these stories with a question. When the rich young ruler comes to him and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus immediately responds with a question. Why do you call me good? I find it interesting that Christ in the first part of chapter 10 says to the Pharisees that the law was created because of their hard hearts. But then Jesus responds to the question that the rich young ruler asks regarding eternal life by quoting him, the law. I wonder why Jesus did that. I wonder why Jesus didn't say something about receiving it like a little child when he had just said, you need to receive it like a little child three verses before. Instead, Jesus gives him the kind of answer adults expected him to say. I find it also interesting that the rich young ruler references his youth as a benchmark for how well he had done. He said, I, I've done all of those things. Jesus, all of those things that you listed out that I needed to do that were in the law, I've done them. I've done them since I was a little kid. I think the rich young ruler gets a, gets a pretty bad rap in most accounts, but I think Jesus sees his desire, sees his potential. And here's the most critical point that I want us to see from the section about the rich young ruler before we start pulling some of these things together. The rich young ruler didn't fully trust that just because he did everything that he had been commanded, that it was enough. Or at least it seems that way. Because he says, Jesus, I did all of that. And he still felt the need to come ask, what must I do? So either he doesn't trust in that, or he comes for a different reason. And I tend to think it was for a different reason. I don't think he was really asking how he could be closer to God. I think he was a people pleaser. I think that's how he'd become successful. He wanted to hear Jesus say, not do all of these things, or why do you call me good? He wanted Jesus to say, you're the man. You've done it. Oh, you've done all of those things you can't do anymore. There's nothing else I can tell you because when I listed off those things, you checked them off. You've done them. And you can almost feel the rich young ruler coming to him and, and wanting the affirmation and to get what he thinks he's about to. When Jesus begins to list off all the things that you need to do, what does the law say? What's the law say you need to do to inherit eternal life? And he begins to list them. He lists them off. And you can almost see the rich young ruler mentally checking the box. I did it. I've done it. That one, yep. I've done that one. I've done that one. I've done that one. And then in the last moment, as he's rattling off this list of things, Jesus throws him a curveball. He gets something that he didn't expect. And it completely destroys his perspective. But we see this spectrum of 
of hard hearts and what it looks like to question, doubt, distrust the teaching and will of God. We see an example of what it means to fully trust, to fully embrace the will of God with a pure, humble, and fully dependent spirit. But we also see someone caught in the middle, someone that has found themselves at a very critical point in their faith walk. The rich young ruler is on the edge a very fine line and could go either way. He's done all the right things. He's checked all the right boxes. He's expressed his desire to approach Christ with a heart of a child. He admits, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. So much so that Jesus loved him, was proud of him and looked at him and loved him. But when the critical point came, when it was time for him to make a decision, he failed. And what we see so eloquently laid out before us are two choices. On one hand, hard hearts of Pharisees, and on the other, the pure hearts of children. And in dramatic literary fashion, we can practically feel this tension if you read these stories together as the rich young ruler struggles to choose which way he will teeter like a child on a seesaw. His choices are laid out before us like a Greek tragedy. And here's what's tragic, is that he couldn't fully let go of his kingdom he had built and fully trust in the kingdom. There was something in his life that occupied that space in his heart that he couldn't let go of. He was clinging to something that was holding him back from fully turning himself over to Christ. There are those, as I mentioned, that have used this story solely to combat purely having possessions, but the true lesson here is that it wasn't the money he couldn't let go of at least from my perspective. Instead, it was the experiences he had had in the past that taught him even more than the law. Just like that first school of thought of neuroscience that says, you've experienced this and this is what it's going to take. And what his experiences had taught him was that the time you invest, you can never get back. That he craved when people treated him like he was important, that he enjoyed hearing how great he was. And if he gave up his stuff, then that would be the act of unraveling all he had built. The time he had spent building his kingdom would have been for nothing. It would have been admitting that he wasn't perfect, that just because the boxes were checked, that he wasn't the person he thought he was coming to Jesus. I can't tell you how much being a father has taught me. <laughs> I honestly never knew what a selfish jerk I was until I had kids. And I've learned so much from my kids. I've shared in the first episode of the podcast that we had challenges that Kristen and I faced in beginning our family. And one of those challenges is a challenge that many, many, many people have faced with premature births. 
And often a result of that is to spend time in the NICU. And that was an experience that we had that I wish upon no one. As someone who prides himself in having it together, I pride myself in having the answers, being the go-to person, being successful. That experience was unlike anything I had ever seen or felt before. You see your children when they say you can see them. You visit when they say you can visit. You hold them when they say you can hold them. And you come in and you sit down and you're in a rocker. And they hand you your child and they're plugged up. You have tubes running everywhere, wires, there's lights, and there's sounds. And you're holding them. And you look down and you see this helpless, fully dependent child. Alarms start to go off. And the nurse that's there helping rushes over and takes your child from you. And the reason that the alarms are going off and the reason that they come and take your child out of your hands is because he's just stopped breathing. And if there was ever any pride that I had in myself, any independence that I had in my abilities, in my talent, in my skills, it goes away in that moment. One of my favorite Beatitudes is blessed are the poor in spirit. And what that means is that in order for us to receive the blessings of the kingdom, we have to be fully dependent, to be a spiritual beggar, to see and recognize that we can do nothing without our Creator. And until we're ready to quit depending on our kingdoms we have built and are ready to be helpless, fully dependent children, the things we do will just be a checklist. Boxes we mark that we use to support the illusion that we've got it all figured out. You know, it doesn't take much for our kingdoms we build to fall. For the walls of success, accomplishment, and prestige to come toppling down around us. All it took was two minutes with Christ for the rich young ruler to have an experience crashing head-to-head -head with the idea that everything he thought was right in the world was simply an illusion that he had created. Pride in the past was the kingdom the rich young ruler had built. We all have our own kingdoms. And I'm not even going to begin speculating on all the things we build for ourselves, but the reason this story resonates with me, and maybe most of us listening, a lot of his kingdom is a lot of my kingdom. I mentioned the first school of thought around neuroscience of grip was that the physical action is based on what we have experienced in the past. The second school of thought, which is beginning to discredit the first, is that grip is based on an uncertainty of what is happening in the moment. In other words, you actually incrementally grip tighter as uncertainty builds around your ability to stay in control of what you're picking up. You don't pick up something 
with a certain anticipation. Instead, you pick up something with the exact same grip and only when you feel uncertain do you begin to adjust. When I'm uncertain, when I feel I'm not in control, my pride takes over. I start going into defense mode. I start becoming very protective of my trust and myself. I found in my own life, when I'm not intentionally focused on God's will for me, I cling, I grip my own understanding and success even tighter to try and pull myself out of whatever mess I've created. So here's what I would ask as we reflect on this story. What is God asking you to let go of? What is the thing that you think defines you that is actually holding you back from being completely helpless and dependent on Him? What is something God is asking you to do that you haven't done? Because there's something else you think is more important. Something that you think, I don't have time for that. I'm too busy. I'm spread too thin. I've got too much going on right now. What's the thing you think is so far out of the question but is actually the thing you've been denying yourself that will ultimately draw you closer to your Creator, your God, your Father, by giving over to Him, fully dependent as a child. Maybe He's asking you to admit you're missing out on a blessing and a life to the full because you won't give up that little insignificant thing that you think defines you. Maybe He's asking you to do the thing that you've put off doing far too long, and that's simply letting go of yourself and letting God begin to work in your life. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I look forward to sharing the next two talks in this series. And if you do nothing else today, do these two things. Love God and love people.